0: hello and welcome to grasping scripture today we'll be delving into the final chapter of second thessalonians that's chapter three of second thessalonians paul's letter to the church at thessalonica well i welcome you as you join us for this podcast today if you're new to the podcast i would encourage you to go back and maybe pick up at the beginning of the of the uh, book of second thessalonians or even better back up to the first Thessalonians, it sets the stage for what we're covering in second Thessalonians. But I anyway, thank you for joining us today. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we gather to study your word, as we set aside this time to seek to hear your voice through Scripture. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear that you would give us eyes to see how your word applies in our life and to the world around us. Father, that you would give us a heart that is sensitive to the promptings of your spirit, that our lives might glorify you, not just with the words we say, but with how we live and how we treat one another. Lord, I ask that you would open your word to us today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we delve into this closing chapter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul brings to conclusion a few topics that he's kind of been running with. You'll remember that there was an issue that probably a letter had arrived at Thessalonica. Uh, between the writing of the first letter and the writing of the second letter by Paul that um, was advocating some things that were not what Paul was teaching. I mean, they were getting sidetracked with the idea that Christ had already returned and, and all sorts of stuff. And Paul has spent the first part of this letter kind of straightening out some of that. But Now he's turning his attention a little different. He requests prayer, and he requests some specific things in that prayer, and there's a specific focus, and we'll we'll get into that. But also, he begins to talk about how the believers at Thessalonica should live, what their lives ought to look like. And although some of the things he has to say to them may be very uncomfortable for us to hear, we need to hear it, because it is God's Word. And the things that Paul is encouraging the church to do so long ago in that place so distant in culture and time from where we are now. Those encouragements may still be profoundly relevant in how we treat one another and how we behave within the body of Christ. So let's take some time to dig into this chapter as we finish out this book. We'll start in the beginning of chapter 3 with verse 1. Paul says, Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we ask you to pray for us. Now, that's a reasonable request, don't you think? But then he elaborates. We ask you to pray for us. Pray that the Lord's message will spread rapidly and be honored wherever it goes, just as when it came to you. So he's saying pray for us, but the primary, the first thing that we need to be praying about is the spread of the message of the Lord, is the gospel, the life-changing, eternity-changing power of the gospel, that it would spread. Do we have that kind of evangelistic priority? I'm not saying your gift has to be evangelism, but all of us as believers are called to proclaim the good news, to evangelize. Do we make it a matter of prayer? Do we focus on it the way Paul is calling on this church to focus on it in prayer? Well, he goes on. After saying, pray that the Lord's message will be spread rapidly and be honored wherever it goes, just as when it came to you, he says, pray too." In verse 2, pray too that we will be rescued from the wicked and evil people. For not everyone is a believer. Now, the Thessalonians knew that firsthand as they were suffering persecution themselves. Paul's saying, hey, be in prayer for us, for the persecution that we face. But the Lord, in verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. See, even though you're facing persecution, there is hope, there is strength, there is protection found in the Lord. Now, Paul's asking them to be praying for him and his companions, that they would be effective in sharing the gospel, that they would be... um, protected and and seen through the persecution that they're facing, but by asking for that, he's also reminding the church at Thessalonica of their own situation and the answer to their situation going on. He says, and we are confident in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we commanded you. May the Lord lead your hearts into full understanding and expression of the love of God and the patient endurance that comes from Christ. So there's Paul's kind of his prayer for them, but also his request for prayer from them. It is a reminder of so many things. In just four verses, he has encapsulated so much of his teaching to the Thessalonian church this reminder of of Christ being that point of strength and that guard for them, that it does involve how they behave. It does involve them being discipled because you'll remember from the history, they they had only been discipled for a matter of, of at best a few months before Paul and his companions were driven out of town. There were gaps uh, in their faith, as Paul refers to it uh, in in a previous letter. All of that was being addressed in this prayer, and wonderfully so, and yet it is still a heartfelt request for prayer. So often the things that we need to be praying for other people about are things that we also need to be reminded about ourselves. I've been involved in a a weekly prayer time and, and devotional Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at different writings on prayer, reminders by Christians, you know, 100, 200 years ago, writing about the significance of prayer, the importance of prayer. And over and over again, the theme is repeated that prayer is not about changing God. It's about bringing us in line with the will of God, with the heart of God that we as believers need to be focused in prayer. We need to understand we are dependent on prayer. It keeps us connected. If we are in a love relationship with our Savior, then there needs to be communication in that relationship. No good relationship is going to exist very long without communication. We need to be hearing from him and we need to be talking to him. Don't neglect the discipline of prayer. And Paul gives us a great place to start right here with the things to pray for and about. Keep the gospel front and center. You'll find it will change the way you view your world and the way you interact with the people around you. Not you become one of those obnoxious Every time you open your mouth, you're trying to convince somebody to accept Jesus and here's a track and let me hit you over head with a Bible sort of thing. I'm not knocking people who have the gift of evangelism understand that. But sometimes we think that evangelism is just ticking people off and using churchy words to do it. And that's not evangelism. Evangelism is showing people who Christ is, introducing people to the Savior. Do we focus on that enough? Do we focus on that in prayer enough? Now we move into the next section of Scripture, and this would be uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 6. In this section of Scripture, I'll just go ahead and admit it, Paul addresses some really uncomfortable things here. Because it seems like, at least in the world I operate in, it seems like the prevailing thought in church is we don't want anybody upset, whether they're in our community or in our congregation. We want everybody happy. Well, let me just go ahead and say now, that is a fantasy world. It's also contrary to scripture. So that's not a good place to be. If that's your philosophy, I just want everybody to be happy. You well, know Why can't we all get along? Well, because some of us are bound for hell and some of us are following Christ, so different destinations, different goals. We're going to have different values. We're not going to get along on everything. But what should we be focused on? Well, here Paul gives some ideas to the church at Thessalonica, some guidance to them on how to behave and how to interact. Here's what he says in verse 6. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus, excuse me, our Lord Jesus Christ, Whoa. Understand as we've studied through some of Paul's letters and even First and Second Thessalonians, Paul has refrained from commanding in the name of Christ. He's refrained from pulling out the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ card and just flat out telling him what to do. We've now hit an exception. That means this is a huge deal. What Paul is about to say is very important. So hear it again. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they received from us. Wait a minute. What's he mean by that? Hmm. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they receive from us. Paul's saying, look, we gave you sound doctrine. We gave you sound teaching of Scripture. We shared with you the teachings of Christ and what it is to live those out in your community, in your life, in your church. He's saying, if you got people that are wearing the badge believer, or if you want the literal Greek translation, it's it's brother. It is fellow Christian. If you got somebody wearing the badge of the T-shirt that says I'm a Christian, but what they do does not line up. If they live idle lives and they don't follow the teachings that Paul has given them about Christ and about what it is to follow Christ, he has some very simple words. He says, stay away. And that's not just a vague suggestion. It would be best. Remember how he prefaced it. We give you this command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the reality is this, brothers and sisters we are either following Christ or we're not. And if in the congregation of the redeemed, we're willing to surround ourselves and become comfortable with people who are not interested in following Christ with their lives, then we've just gotten comfortable with the world. And our destination is supposed to be very different. And our purpose and values are supposed to be very different from the world. And Paul is calling out that difference. He's saying, look, those that live like the world, stay away from them. That plainly. No caveats. No, no. here's your out on this. Here's the loophole. No. Distance yourself. Why? Well, he's going to go on and explain there is actually a redemptive intent. It's to guard you, but it is also to bring shame on them so that they will begin to experience shame and conviction for their sin and get right with Jesus, that they will get back on track and follow and serve him. Let's pick up again with the passage. Starting in verse 7. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. Now here, Paul isn't saying, well, you know, if you work for a church, you shouldn't get food or whatever. He's discussed elsewhere how those that lead in the church should be taken care of and, and things of that nature. So I'm not going to get into all that now. But what he's saying is we had the right to ask those things, but we didn't, and we didn't for a reason. And the reason we didn't do it is we wanted to show you by example. We wanted to give you a living picture of of what it is to be diligent in providing for yourself so that you can serve without obstruction. And so we lived it out in front of you. And based on that, he's able to say, look, imitate us. If you're not sure what it looks like or how to look at what we did, do the same thing. We wanted to not be a burden to you and to give you this example, picking up in verse 9. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. There it is. Verse 10, Even while we were with you, we gave you this command, Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Have you heard that before? I believe uh, that was one of the phrases uh, even from Jamestown uh, in the the first colonists coming over from from England to the New World commenting in their colony because there were some folks that felt they were above work and so actually this passage of Scripture was shared Uh, if you will not work you will not eat Now, am I saying we shouldn't be involved in benevolency, and there aren't people that hit hard times, and it's everyone's own fault, and they ought to just suck it up? No, I'm not saying that at all. In fact, the church has a great ministry. Christians throughout history have had a great ministry of helping people at the point of their physical need. But Paul is talking about within the body of the church, and he's talking about idleness, if you will, laziness. If you figure these people have to take care of me because I'm one of them, so I'm just going to mooch. I'm just going to depend on their generosity to provide for me when I could do it myself. Paul's going, no, that that is not okay. And we need to help people get out of that. Helping them understand, the, if you will, the dignity of work. Now, are are there those out there that, due to life situations, illness, disability, may not be able to provide for themselves, or at least at the level they need provided for? Sure. And that's where we can meet people at their point of need. A great resource in helping understand what this looks like for individuals and for churches in a a very uh, relational and personal sense is the wonderful book, When Helping Hurts, by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. Uh, It is a challenging book. I I read that book a while back, and somebody asked me how I liked it, and I said, well, it's like being drug across broken glass. Uh, It's a painful book to read. It is a challenging book to read. It's a great book. It is a biblically grounded book. That is insightful, but it is so challenging to what so many of us have become used to and comfortable with. I believe that Corbett and Ficker have have done an excellent job of calling believers and calling the church back to who we are to be in ministering to people. So I encourage you check out When Helping Hurts. It's tough. But it is a worthwhile read, and I would encourage every believer to read it. It'll give you some new perspective. Well, that rounds out the discussion on, well, this passage of Scripture anyway, on what Paul is giving as guidelines to the church. Uh, He has a few more commands for them about idle lives and and the nature and, and reason for all that, and we'll we'll get into that in just the next. All right. So picking up in verse eleven, Paul is is uh, explaining and giving more commands. He says, "Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives." Now he's just given us those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Now he's saying we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's businesses. In other words, you're busybodies, you're you're so interested in telling everybody else how they ought to do it, and yet you are, at a very fundamental level, not doing anything. You're not bringing anything to the table. You are not constructively adding to the community of faith or your own situation. All you are doing is meddling and being idle. And Paul calls them out on that. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. Take note of those that refuse to obey what we say in this letter. Stay away from them. There we have it again, that admonition. Stay away. Separate yourself from them. Stay away from them so they will be ashamed. Don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as you would a brother or sister. So it was common in that day and age to isolate yourself from enemies. But when they did that, they cut off Everything. If someone was your enemy, you didn't do business with them. You didn't talk to them. You didn't associate with them. You didn't worship with them. You didn't, there's complete isolation. He's saying, don't go that far. You still love them like they're a brother or sister because <laughs> they're a brother or sister in Christ. But you don't have to hang around them, you don't have to associate closely with them because as a community of faith, you need to let them know that the way they're choosing to live and the things they're choosing to do are contrary to God's call on their life. And when they become shunned by the entirety of the community, when the entirety of the Christian community ceases to associate with them, stays away from them, they're going to realize something's up. As Paul describes it, it's going to bring that that shame. They will become ashamed. Now, you're not trying to guilt them into a behavior. You're trying to put them in a situation where they will have to look at their own heart, experience conviction leading to repentance in their behavior. This isn't to the point of excommunication. This is This is kind of a midpoint on the concept of church discipline. You're not kicking them out of the church, uh, as as Paul describes elsewhere, turning them over to Satan. Instead, you are just drawing back and letting them feel kind of alone, letting them feel the full weight of their bad decisions. If they're not going to work, you're not going to step in and see that they eat. If they want to sit back and meddle, but live off of everybody else, you're not going to allow that to happen. And it's going to create a discomfort in their life. The intent of that discomfort is to drive them back to right relationship with Christ. You see, discipline throughout Scripture is intended for our good. The very nature of discipline is it shapes us and moves us in the direction we need to go for our own benefit. And that's what we're seeing here. Paul is encouraging the church at Thessalonica to exercise some discipline with those that are refusing to follow Christ, as has been taught by the apostles, and put them in a situation where they are going to have to wrestle with the consequence of their choices in the hopes that that will lead them to new and better choices, the choices of following Christ, as opposed to living these idle lives. He said, don't just turn a cold shoulder, warn them as you would a brother or sister. And now in closing out the chapter, starting in verse 16, Paul makes it abundantly clear that it is him writing this letter. As I've mentioned before, there seems to be another letter attributed to Paul, but not written by Paul, that had led the church at Thessalonica a little little off base. And Paul's making it clear that if he's going to write the letter, it's going to be obvious he wrote the letter. And you would think, you know, just us being students of God's word, Having read Paul's letters, there's some pretty distinctive, I mean, he doesn't shy away from much. So I would kind of think if I was reading a letter that didn't sound like Paul, I might go, hmm, that doesn't really sound like Paul. But for whatever reason, you know, and I'm not them, I wasn't there, he's going to make it abundantly clear. Now, of course, this is the closing of a letter. He follows the general form of that where you have wishings of health and benefit to those that you're writing to, but he changes it up. In verse 16, he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you his peace. And at all times and in every situation, the Lord be with you all. So he's praying for the peace and that, that peace, basically the grace of God on them. That's more than a well wish. That's more than, Oh, may you be healthy and prosperous. No. May you be right with the Lord. May you have the peace. His peace at all times and in every situation. This is a heartfelt blessing to this congregation from one who has served them and has suffered in their presence for their sake and for the sake of the gospel. And then in verse 17, to clear up any question, he says, here is my greeting in my own handwriting. Paul, I do this in all my letters to prove they are from me. In other words, if you got a letter that didn't have this, you didn't get that letter from me. Now, did Paul write the rest of the letter? No, he would have used a scribe and amanuensis, a, a writing secretary, basically, and dictated the letter. But here he's putting his pen to paper and signing it himself so it's abundantly clear who this is from. There's no question. And then in closing, verse 18, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So he's prayed for them to have the peace of Christ in every situation and at all times, and that they would have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with them as well. And Paul knows they have the grace of God with them. But he's reminding them of God's promise to be with them, to never forsake them. That his grace is sufficient for all they will face. Don't we all need that reminder? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your peace in the midst of whatever situation and at any and all times. Father, we thank you for your peace, which we need so desperately. And Lord, we rejoice and thank you for your grace, which saves us. Your grace, which means everything your grace that changed everything. We put our hope, our trust, and our faith in you, Father. We thank you for the work of Jesus Christ in redeeming us. And Lord, we pray that you would convict each one of us in our hearts of those areas where we have become idle those areas where we have become meddlers. Convict us of those things. Bring us to that point of brokenness where we change. Where we live a new, fresh commitment to you. Where we live different than who we were. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.